The world feels divisive right now. Whether it's our religious beliefs, value systems or political affiliations, it sometimes feels that the edges separating us are ever hardening as we're constantly pitted one against the other. But we risk losing sight of the one thing uniting us all, our common humanity. The external systems of religion, economics or politics is what separates us. Whatever creed or colour we are, humans share so many core internal truths. The joy, bewilderment and fear of childhood, struggle to become autonomous as an adult, first love, caring in so many different ways for children and grieving loss. And it's important to remember just how much we actually have in common with people who may on the surface at least seem very different. Take my guest today, he's younger than me, he's of British Indian heritage, oh, and he's also a man. And yet, our experiences as children share similar themes, as do our values as adults. I need to tell you straight off that he's the head honcho at the business sponsoring this podcast, Anchor Store. But while I have loads of great sponsors over the years, Tarun Goodamore is different. Yes, our business values chime because that's got to happen if I'm going to partner with someone. Tarun, like me, is a change maker. He too believes in the power of community, small business, local independent retail, and how vital it is to the enrichment of our collective life. So I knew we would share the same business values on paper, but in real life, our partnership has translated into something more. Tarun and I come from the same place emotionally, and we both take that into our work alongside each other. And that's the thing. Business is far more than the physics of data and spreadsheets. It's about the chemistry too. And when you come from a similar place, you share the same light. Then you can really use business as a force for good. And that is how change starts to happen. I'm Mary Portis, and this is Beautiful Misfits. Welcome to Rune Goodall. Thank you, you so like much. That? I love that. I think so much we talk about business as sort of transactional. Mm. And yet you and I, when we met together, you sent me a, a little LinkedIn post and you said, we share a lot in common. And most people on LinkedIn think that's business, don't mm. they? So I'm like, oh, right, well, I'll wait till I meet him. <laughs> and then we met, physically met, when we were filming in a small independent shop. And it was wonderful because I was at the back and we were just having a little bit of a break and you came in with a load of cake for everyone, which is always a good thing. And we sat at the back, so there was me, and there was the shop owner. And within probably 20 minutes, all of us were talking about grief that had happened in our lives. Do you remember that? Mm, really? It was a really touching moment. And she had lost a son, a child, which is a terrible grief. And you and I had lost our parents. And it was just wonderful because so often that doesn't happen in business. And yet we all talked about life experiences which enriched us coming together in business and I often talk about the physics of business and the chemistry if you don't have the chemistry it just doesn't work does it do you no. enjoy that after I think we went on talking for hours afterwards anyway didn't we we all carry scars don't we yeah and those scars aren't often visible yes and I actually the first time I heard you was on a podcast talking about your own experiences mm. and I said to my wife I just get her. You know, grief particularly, there's a difference between sympathy and empathy, mm. right? And I, I found when I'm grieving, people, I'm so sorry. And inside there's a part of me thinking, but you don't get it. And so when you see people who get it, 
I think there's this unspoken chemistry mm. that connects us. Mm. And you get down there with them. I remember the wonderful metaphor that you talked about, the man in mm. the hole. Tell me about that one. So a man is walking and falls in a hole. And he can't get out. The walls are really steep. And a priest walks by. He says, hey, father, father, I'm in the hole. Get me out. The father writes a prayer, throws it in the hole. Then a, uh, a doctor walks by. And uh, the man says, doctor, doctor, I'm stuck in the hole. Get me out. The doctor writes a prescription, throws it in the hole. And then his friend walks by. goes, Joe, hey, Joe, I'm stuck in the hole. Get me out. And Joe gets in the hole with him. He goes, what are you doing, Joe? Now we're both stuck in the hole. And Joe looks at him and says, yeah, but I've been here before and I know the way out. Yeah, that's beautiful. I've heard that you say that a former CEO of yours, Charlie Kim, ingrained the words in you that attitude in life trumps aptitude. And it's a great mantra to teach. We could talk forever about the people who just are the can-do joys that you have in business. But... You're known for your approach to workplace culture, which I'm going to come on to later. But my guess would be that you've probably always had to live your life in that way with a great attitude. So take me back to your early life. I want to talk about where you were born and how you came to be how sure. you are today. Yeah, so my parents ran an independent wholesale distributor in Whitechapel. So my mum was the creative brains behind the operation. She would design the clothes. We had a huge loom in our, in our shed in, in Acton. My father was the commercial, the sales guy. He could you know, sell ice to an Eskimo. And we lived in Acton with my paternal grandmother, so, which is often common in Indian culture. And there's the three of us living in Acton, living a, a happy life. Were you first-generation British-born Indian? When did they come over? Your... So my parents are from an area called Sindh, which is North India. When the partition happened between India and Pakistan, everybody that was in Sindh, that then became Pakistan. And so they all had to emigrate. And so Sindhis are known for being travellers and entrepreneurs. And so my one set of grandparents went to Sierra Leone, which is where my mum was born. And the other set went to Kenya, Mombasa. And that's where my, my dad was born. And then they came over, they all set up businesses, and then they came over to the UK in the 60s. So there you are in Acton. A loom. What were they doing? Were they actually making fabrics? Were they... Yeah, my mum my, my would design the clothes. Wow. And then we would go to the Far East. So as a kid, I was very well travelled. We'd go to you know, Malaysia and, and get it manufactured. And then they would sell the... And then they would buy from other brands as well in that region. And then distribute them out to independent retailers. So we had a, a shop in Whitechapel. I would spend my weekends there causing more mayhem than helping. <laughs> so they were selling, what, ladies' fashion? No, no, kids' fashion. I was their model, model yeah. <laughs> I want to of this. <laughs> and so we got all these fashion brochures with a little tubby me as their model. You know, that was my life. Went to school in, in Acton and Ealing. And then when I was five, my father passed away. And so it was me, my mum and my grandmother. What did he die of? Was it sudden? It was over a period of about five years, okay. I think. He had a disease for, mm -hmm. for for a long time. And I was raised by two very strong female figures, my mother and my grandmother. My grandmother, we actually used to call mummy. Everyone in the family, whether she was their mum or not, called her mummy. So what did you call mummy then? My mama. mama. <laughs> my mum yeah, was yeah, mama. Yeah. My mummy was my grandmother. And then when I was 11, my mum got diagnosed with cancer. And within seven months, she had passed away. And I 
also I was raised by a community. We had a big Indian a Sindhi community is is huge. And my mum had three siblings, my dad had six siblings. And my mum had chosen for me to live with my uncle who lived in Dubai. Wow. So I went from West London to Dubai and spent my formative years there. Wow, that's a lot, though, isn't it? I mean, so you lost both your parents by the time you were 11. I'm just thinking, because my, my youngest son is 10, I just can't imagine losing both his parents and then being sent to Dubai. So this is completely different life. How did you feel? Can you remember any of that? Though? You know, I was thinking about this recently. After my mum passed away, there was actually a period where I woke up and I couldn't walk. And I went to hospitals and they were doing tests on me for four, three, four days, just unable to move. And then all of a sudden I regained my ability to walk and it was psychosomatic. Mm. Apparently the brain can't deal with that amount of pain and anguish. And so it creates an event that it can deal with. And so the grief was overwhelming. It was crippling. I was always in tears, but also unable to talk about it. And that carried through to my teenage years when, when I was in Dubai. Internally, you talk about being a misfit, I felt a misfit. But externally, a lot of my friends growing up at school in Dubai didn't even know that this had happened to me. I wasn't open about it, certainly not to my friends, even not to my family. And, you know, as I look back now, when trauma happens in our lives or any event that is difficult, either consciously or unconsciously, we take a lesson from it. Right. And sometimes that lesson is good and sometimes it's bad. And I learned a lesson that, well, no one's going to look after me, so I'm going to look after myself. Mm. It's interesting when you talked about um, you didn't tell your school friends. Was there a slight embarrassment? Because I felt that slight mm. embarrassment of not wanting to be so different when I, my mother died. And mm. like you, I used to walk to school crying. I remember mm. just walking and crying. And, mm. and then the bus would come and then think, stop crying, get on it. Mm. And then I would cry if mm. I was on my own. It was mm. just, and you couldn't help it. It just came from this place of grief, but no counselling, no help. Did you have any No, I didn't. And I think it was a different time back then. I think it wasn't at the top of consciousness to mm. go see a therapist mm. as it would do now, I think, as a child growing mm. up. Mm. And but also you went from um, a matriarchal family mm. you know, into was your uncle single? Was he married? No, he was married. Yeah. He had three children, younger children. Right. And my maternal grandparents were also living in that house. Right. So it was a big household. Yeah. And there was no space for me when I first moved because they hadn't accounted for this either. So mm. for the first two years, I was sleeping on a mattress in my grandparents' room. Mm. And also for being a, a single child, having three siblings, it's not something I dealt with particularly well. So it was a lot of change. Mm. And I went from an environment in London where it was very independent. Right? I was, my parents were, were working a lot. And so I would take myself to school and back a lot of the time. Mm. I'd come home and make myself mm. a cheese toasty for dinner. Mm. And you go into an environment like Dubai where you have more staff living in the house than you do the family. No one walks anywhere. No so one walks yeah. anywhere. So it's just a big culture shock. It's interesting when you said you start to take care of yourself, a strong sense of self when the world around you mm. is changing and you actually realise it's only down to me. I mean, I don't know if the, you absolutely realised or that you grew into that where you just became this deeply independent. Do you think that building strong 
principles, a work ethic, opinions were actually vital mechanisms for you in sort of controlling this narrative. Totally. And that lesson, by the way, was the wrong lesson. Tell me why. Because when I look back now, I had a huge family. They were all supporting me. They all loved me. Mm. But it felt me against the world. There's a band called the Libertines. And, of course. And, and when I was growing up, I used to listen to a lot of melancholy music. And they have a, a lyric of one of the songs, which is, cornered, the boy kicked out of the world, but the world kicked back a lot fucking harder. Mm. And that mm. would always ring true to me. Mm. And it was the wrong lesson because... the When reality... you say it kicked back a lot harder, what was it? I mean, apart from the tremendous grief, did you continue to kick out? Yeah, I was quite rebellious. Yeah. I was very angry. Yes, yeah, yeah. I was very vengeful. Mm. If someone had wronged me, I would want to wrong them because I felt this sense of injustice. Mm. Why was the world doing this to me? Why, why me? And it serves me to a point, but only as I got older, I realised that that narrative was holding me back. Also, did you see yourself as this angry person? I saw myself as that, you know, mm. and it took me a long while into adulthood. You know, I would just explode mm. with that anger. And I didn't know it was linked to death. I just thought, oh, I'm just a high, mm. volatile, angry person, you know. And my music was exactly what gave me such release as mm. well, you know. And I found great expression through music you know the lyrics that just went straight to your heart and, mm. and still to this day you know i can quote so what, many what were, what were some of the ones well that i think for, for at that time i mean the punk movement was happening can you start to imagine so you know all of us well so many people were dressing like that but i felt it inside me this anger you know that this was unfair theirs was at society mine was at this pain and loneliness that was that just felt so incredibly painful and deep even though I didn't want to be a punk but the vibration and the frequency of it was expressing who I was and there was part of me also that feared it because actually what I wanted was softness and, and a home and security and I didn't because my mother died when I was 16 and within a year my father had remarried and by the way he wasn't having an affair he just you know met someone and and then he died nine months later but he, everything got left to her. So we were all kicked out of the family mm. home. And it was just crazy, you know. So we actually didn't, and I, like you, I went and stayed with aunts. My father was an only child of my mother's family all in Ireland. So this great family friend who had four kids of their own put me and my brother, my younger brother Lawrence, up. And I knew then I was in the way, you know, even though they loved me and wanted to look after. But you feel this isn't my home and I'm I'm nestling in on their life it just felt ugly, awkward, and mm. not my place. I can totally resonate mm. with that. Mm. And in many ways, I felt a part of everybody's family. Because everybody yes. was trying to, wanted to look after me. Yes. But at the same time, I felt part of nobody's family. Yes. And incredibly isolated and yeah. alone. I was listening, because Lem Sissé and Julia Metcalf said both similar things to you on the podcast before, where they said that I won't let this pain define me. And... Did you look at that in a similar way as a choice? Because I remember reading that you tweeted a couple of years ago, the day that we accept that we've chosen to choose our choices is the day we cast off the shackles of victimhood. It was only in my adult life I gained yes. that perspective. And we talked about this sense of injustice. Mm. But I realised, actually, I could look back at that, what happened to me. And it sounds really strange to be grateful for it. Same here. But yeah. I, I could look yeah. back at, at how it shaped me for better and for worse. Yes. 
And it helped me recognize, well, I had to confront and recognize that I can't control what has happened to me, but I always can control how I respond. Mm. And that is twofold. One, it can be quite sad because you then realize actually how I, the life I'm living today is as a result of the choices I've made. It's me. On the other hand, it can be really empowering. Why is that sad? So take me through that again. Because if you're not happy with your life or you're not happy where you are in life, it can be a result of the choices you've made. The paths that you've taken. Yeah. Yeah. We mentioned before that your parents ran a wholesale business. Do you have memories of what their work ethic was like and what motivated them? Because obviously they were driven. They were. They would work long hours. Mm. And I have a conversation about this with my wife today because I work long hours Mm. because I'm really committed about what I do. But that's been my mental model growing up Mm. because I think for them, enterprise and creativity was my entire family, generations down. I have maybe 40 plus cousins, first cousins in my family. (laughs) I thought I was doing well. I was Irish Catholics, I've got 27, so you've got 40. (laughs) Yeah, and and almost all of them, I realised when I was leaving university, all of them either work in a family business or run their own business. Wow. It's completely cultural, and that's been passed on through the generations. And because we had to. Yes, of course, survival and extraordinary work ethic. I found myself looking back through your CV and reading what you'd achieved, which is extraordinary, but somehow it's no surprise to me today you find yourself in the business of independent retail, just linking with your family anchor store, where you're also known for building community, culture and care into the fabric of the business. I love the idea. And I mean, is there a part of you where you think, you know, I hope that my parents are there and seeing and feeling this and are a bit proud? That drives me. It does. The quest for their love, their Mm. pride. Mm. That drives me more than anything, Mm. I think. Never goes, does it? No. Does it for you? No. God, I find myself talking to my mother so often, you know. Mm. I'm sure she's... And when I do wrong, I'm like, oh, my God, you're looking at me. Mm. I know. A little energy, her spirit. But talk to me about your business journey, because before Anchor Store, you began at a company called Next Jump. There was a big e-commerce platform that handles loyalty programs for the likes of Dell, Intel, Hilton Hotel, but where you literally worked up from the ranks of customer service assistant, didn't you, to the top? And I, I noticed that even before you began at Next Jump, you spent six months in the financial services sector, Merrill Lynch. Was that a good fit for you? What was that like? Oh. Exactly. <laughs> It was helpful insofar as it taught me what not to do. And I, and I really believe that when it comes to yeah, when you're yeah, trying yeah. to figure something out. Yeah. Try it yeah. and see how it fits. And banking and finance wasn't for me. No. And I wanted to do something more entrepreneurial. And it was a choice of do I go and start my own business at yeah. this point or do I learn the skills to be able to do that? And so I joined an earlier stage company called Next Jump. And so there you go. Jump forward a few years. By age 23, you were running the business in the UK. This is the next jump, yeah. Mm. As one of Europe's fastest-growing tech companies. And while you were there, Harvard University actually published a book on Next Jump's high-performance culture, and you subsequently made the Forbes 30 under 30 list. Just talk me through that incredible ascent. That's extraordinary. I'm just grateful for the support I had. You know, a lot of people in my shoes, I was 23... I was in a business and the founder, based in the US, gave me the opportunity to run that company. 
where else would that happen to trust a 20... And I was the most junior person at the company at that but point. But he must have seen something in you. There must he have did. been. When you look he back did. and you see Tarun, little Tarun at 23, what do you think it was? You know, the best piece of advice I got when I first joined the world of work, I was doing... My first job was customer services mm. and it was a lot of manual mm. data entry work. People would call me up and say, I can't log into my account. And I would say, well, have you tried the password reset email? <laughs> and, and that was my role. And I thought, you know, quite entitled. Mm. I've got a degree from a good university. Mm. Why am I doing this role? And I was doing that role for the best part of, of a year. And I gave that feedback to my bosses. I said, should I be doing this role? You know, I'm better than this. Mm. And they said, grow where you're planted. And it was a wake up call for me. I realized I was being entitled. Mm. And that if I treated this job as if I was the CEO of this job, what would I do? Would I just clock in, clock out, or would I treat this in a different way? And that really serves me well. It really serves me well. And I started to take on and assume more responsibility, even though it wasn't asked of me. And I think that that's what Charlie really respected and valued. And we talked about attitude over aptitude. And I was very hungry for feedback, honest feedback. And what about financial independence? Because I was just thinking while you were saying that, that mm. when people say to me, oh, God, it was amazing, you know, you were on the board of Harvey Nichols by the time you were 30. I think I did what you did, but not necessarily uh, coming from, you know, a, a high degree, but actually going, I've got nothing to fall back on. So I've just got to work harder mm. and be really good. And I kind of think I just grew like the mm. plant because I was just learning and learning and learning and I had no other options and then I became skilled and I was able to then become creative and my little flowers budded. Look, this is my metaphor. We can see this plant. And mm. that's how And my little head went up to the sun and people said, this is great, you're great. And you grow bigger and bigger. But it wasn't great at the beginning. It was kind of, the, I'm the little plant in the soil. There was only the dirt that I could see, but mm. I had no options. And actually that's kind of similar to what you did. You went, okay, shut up, park the ego, root yourself. Yeah. And also... I see this a lot when I'm observing now grads coming into the workforce, mm. making mistakes that I was going to make as well or had made. And it's the idea that we can be so outcome focused, going from paycheck to paycheck and, and trying to get an increase in that. But early on in your career, if you optimise for learning, you will earn more in the future. Mm. I think also, though, and um, I'm sure that you and I share a kind of a spiritual connection on, on the way we see the world, I've often felt that when I'm really connected to my true belief and this feels right, it just opens up to me, the world, and things come at me and it just grows. And I've done a lot of work on myself with that, you know, through reading great spiritual teachers. And I was wondering whether you had any of the great Indian Vedas, whether that connected with you when you were younger. Did your parents have that? Did you find any kind of spiritual connection as you grew up? Because the way you talk... Like my family it. were very spiritual. Yeah, I actually was not growing up. Mm. It's something I rejected as yeah. part of my community and identity. But later on in life, I realised the importance of self-awareness. Mm. I remember when I was... Consciousness. Consciousness. Yeah. I, and I remember really early on in my career, I was cold calling and I had a script 
and the beginning part of the script was, um, hi, this is Tarun. It's a bit of an unusual call, actually. I'm not sure you're the best person. And they would hang up. Yeah, I, I would do. do I would do that call. <laughs> yeah, so you, you, you oh, were hanging God, up. Oh, God, no, me. not yeah. him. Yeah. And I would do that. And I couldn't handle the embarrassment. So I would do the calls from the fire escape so nobody else in the office could hear me. Anyway, past a week later, I'm in the gym. And I had a personal trainer. And he says to me, Tarun, you're always skipping legs day. What's legs day? Like, well, you know, you work out on your upper body oh, or yeah. whatever. But you never do legs Oh, yeah, yeah. That's why those men look like those dairy leaf cheeses. (laughs) Jesus. Yeah, So he gave me that feedback. Okay, okay. And then a week later, with my cousin, she's like my sister, and she said, Tarun, I never know what's going on in your life. You'd never open up. And I realised that all these pieces are data that actually I'm afraid to look weak. It's just showing up in different places. It's showing up in business. It's showing up in the gym. It's showing up with my relationships I have with my friends and my family. And I started to connect the dots. And I realized how, going back to my childhood, I had wore this coat of armor that shaped me for better. It gave me drive and determination and competitiveness. But it was also keeping me an arm's length away from everybody, not really allowing me to bring my authentic self, scared of failure, scared of looking bad. And that was really powerful. Because mm. one of the hardest things is recognizing that what got you so far will not get Get you to the the next next level level. yeah and it can be really hard to unlearn bad habits and that's the process i needed to go on and you did with support yeah we can't Um, do it on our own we can't do it on our own the most surreal point in your career today was receiving an email i laughed at this i sort of laughed from the head of strategy at uk government intelligence requesting that you make a keynote at the annual conference on high performance cultures Talk to me about that. When I was at NextRump, yeah, we went on a cultural transformation. And a lot of companies, I guess, will say that. Did you spearhead that, though? It was spearheaded by our founder. Yeah. And he came into work one day. He was in tears saying that the way we're running the company isn't right and we need to change. And it resulted in an overhaul on how we hire people and actually how we hire for attitude over aptitude yeah. and humility. And yeah. It changed how we give feedback. And as leaders, yep. we receive feedback. It changed. It went through this whole process, which accumulated in Harvard Business Review, writing a book about the future of work. What year was that then? 2016. That's when I probably wrote Work Like a Woman. And I did the same thing. I mean, I sobbed for a week. Mm. Even my business was based on the same codes of business, of individualism, profit, goal. I was doing that. I mean, like, I was much later on recognising all this stuff than you. And so that's when I wrote my book, Work Like a Woman, and changed the whole culture. And indeed, much the same as what you were talking about. Actually, you described it as a deliberately developmental organisation, a company that puts learning at the heart of their corporate culture and strategy. And you had things like a no firing for performance reasons policy and offered bonuses to those who did the most to improve the workplace culture. That's wonderful. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing. This is why I love, though, Tarun, though. This just wouldn't have happened 20 years ago. You know, the world is getting better. And those are becoming the sort of business structures that are the ones that are actually moving forward and moving social progress and society forward, aren't they? And I think there's a growing recognition from other businesses that they need to change as well. Totally. You know, we did a lot of work with the military, in fact. Mm. They coined the phrase command and control, right? They were top-down driven organisations. And what a lot of those organisations are starting to realise 
is that that no longer serves us today. Mm. And we need to change mm. because we need to have more people and allowed and equipped to make decisions at all levels. It's, it's too slow if we just have a top-down hierarchy. And so there's this growing sense that the world is moving really fast. Mm. You see it in the news, mm. right? You mm. pick up, it used to be you get a newspaper, Sunday Times, okay, a little bit has changed. You refresh BBC every two seconds oh and there's, gosh, a, there's, an update, there's an update, right? And a huge amount of pace of information flow all the time. Businesses that can no longer make these five-year plans. It's three-month, one-month oh, plans. Oh, right? literally. I banned that. That was one of the things that I had that in our interviews never ask anyone where they see themselves yeah. in three years. I don't even know where I'm going to be tomorrow. Because things are changing all the time. Uh, and also, there's something beautiful about being reactive and organic and connecting to the feeling of a situation rather than that's where I've got to go. You kind of set yourself up for failure because if you don't achieve it, you feel failure and actually you miss out on all the other beautiful things that just sometimes little whispers that come into you that you should be doing something or something else that says, how about going that way? We lose our humanity in that. Brené Brown talks about vulnerability as the joyous core of resilience. And you saw this was important in business at a time when not a lot of people did. Also, please, can we just talk about this? Brené Brown was your mentor. How did that happen? It was very surreal. <laughs> it was set up by Charlie. Yep. And he said, I'll mentor somebody from your team if you mentor somebody from my team. And oh, right. So, so he must have known Brené and been powerful. They, they met. So I spent a good few months with her. And to help me understand how I better work with other people because I used to very arrogantly think to myself, oh, I'm business, all I need. You know, I was running a big organisation, doing 100 million in revenue, and I would think to myself, all we need is another one of me. That's, <laughs> that's what we need to succeed. How arrogant was I? <laughs> and what she really helped me realise was that I need someone who's the complete opposite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I need someone to rein me in. I need someone who sees the world completely differently so we have diversity of thought and embrace that because actually what I was probably doing is pushing that away. I did that and I did employ someone who was very similar to me. He was fabulous and we, gosh, we had some crazy years and fun, laughter and then... I absolutely came to that conclusion. Mm. And actually, the someone like me, I, you know, I, uh, we ended up sort of sometimes having terrible sort of like emotional like yeah. fights because that one was very much like me. And now my chief exec, who you've met, Corrine, is completely the opposite of me. And it is wonderful. And we share the same light, like we talk about this, share the same values, the same moral compass, the same vision. It's completely different and it so works. You're right, there are some non-negotiables. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. The values the need value to be aligned. The value system, totally non negotiable But in terms of decision-making, oh. having somebody who sees the world differently is so valuable. It's Because we all, we all have blind spots. There's yeah. always things we're not seeing that somebody else is. God, it's magical. First of all, Charlie, wherever you are, what a great man. I salute you. Wonderful. So let's get on to Anchor Store. You joined in April this year as General Manager for UK. And so just tell me how Anchor Store fitted into those values. I mean, for people who don't know Anchor Store. So Anchor Store exists to level the playing field for independent retail. Yep. We do that by working with independent retailers all across the UK and Europe and give them the tools they need to succeed in running their business, from discovering new brands to equipping them with the financial terms needed to succeed and compete against the big box retailers like Amazon. 
So Anchor Store is a unicorn status company, which means it got a shed load of investment, right? So because of its vision. And what's so exciting when I read about it and how we discovered each other was this, is that your vision is to rewild retail. And what you mean by that is actually to bring back power to the independent. You understand the importance of bringing business back into the community. And this must link back to your parents with their shop, I'm wondering. And I'm going to go on a bit about this, but here's the thing what I'm getting to. When I did my High Street report, this was at a time when the High Street was under real threat. And I would go into government and I wrote a piece that was talked about community and how the social infrastructure of high streets are deeply important to society. And one of the great books that I read at the time was by Jane Jacobs, who'd in the 60s written this book called The Death of the American City. It was a phenomenal piece of work. And at the time, she was laughed at by these big town planners and architects who were all male, and she was female, because they were building the mouths out of town. She said, you're going to lose what's really central to society. And she talked about the triviality of some of the things, like bumping into someone and saying hello on the high street. You know, seeing the, the, your neighbour's kids having a sneaky fag around the corner and going, oi, boys, what are you up to as you come out of the post office? You know, or saying, can your daughter babysit tonight? Mm-hmm. Or All of those things she said, aren't trivial at all. They are a, a web of security for us. Um, You can tell I'm going to go on long on this because it's so deeply important to me. And at the time when I was doing the High Street Report, I would go into government and meet with many of the MPs and they would say, have you met with the CEO of Sainsbury's? And I'd go, yes, I've done my due diligence. Have you met with Sir Philip Green? And I'd go, yeah. And I knew what they were saying to me. They were saying to me, meet with the people who know how to make a shed load of money but actually aren't doing anything for social progress or society. So these were the stores that built out of town. These were the businesses that we know what happened, where they made shed loads and didn't worry about whether they pulled a store or shop off the high street because what did it matter, you know? That's not going to make us money. It's when the internet started to grow. So when I read Anchor Store and the idea of rewilding I wanted to ask you, why is it so important that you believe in community or have I just taken your bacon by saying that? (laughs) I think it sets up the context really well. The difference with independence is it's run by real people, Mm. not boards, not shareholders, not algorithms. Mm. And the relationship between the community and residents and shopkeepers is more than just transactional. I was in my local grocer in Kensal Rise, it's run by Mo. Always, without fail, he gives a little one a free banana or some chocolate. Or We know the whole community knows Mo. Growing up in Golders Green, there's a restaurant called Local Friends. My family would go there every Sunday. We knew all the waiters, all the waitresses, and it was just a hub of our community. Fantastic. And I think Anchor Store was founded on that understanding that these communities, these independents, are vital for our communities, for our sense of belonging. Yeah. And do you wonder if, like, with both of us, when that was taken from us, that that's why it resonates even more? 
He's nodding, by the way. <laughs> Forget no, it's just when you said that. So when I was 16 and my mother died and I used to have to make the dinner and I, oh, my God, and I used to get on the school bus and I, my school bus was in Rickmansworth and then I would get off in Watford and the local shopkeepers, the butcher would say to me, this is what your mother had on a Wednesday, hmm. you know. It's just saved me. And I was even thinking the other day with Horatio, I was picked him up from school and he had his ball and he said, oh, my money it pumped up. And he just goes into our local post office where Zam, everybody knows, mm. pumps up the ball, didn't buy it. <laughs> All right, thanks, bye, off he goes. I mean, we let this go at our peril. We didn't, we. We really let it go. But here's the other thing, the stats of SME, small, medium enterprise, it's something like this country is over 90% SMEs. Mm. We forget that. We only hear on the news about the big businesses and what they're doing. Actually, we need to help these guys. They are the backbone of our business world. And when we talk about households yeah. and the support going to households, well, who runs these businesses? Exactly. It's households. Exactly. So just tell me some of the things, how you're leading the charge and what Ankerstore does. How do you see this sort of independent wholesale model being key to resilience for small and local economies? Talk to me on that. Well, when we talk about resilience, we yeah. think about independence. Think about what they've been through in the last three years, five years. We've had Brexit, we've had COVID, and now we have the cost of living crisis. So these businesses are increasingly resilient because they've had to adapt Right, so to give you an example with COVID, a lot of these businesses are reliant on going to trade shows to discover new brands. Trade shows are shut. What do I do? Oh, I need to sell into retail, but these retailers are shut. Do I sell up my own e-shops? So we saw a lot of innovation coming out of the pandemic, but there are still key pain points that retailers face today to help them compete. So they include, I want to order something for my shop, but I can't afford the minimum spend. I've got to spend a £1,000 to get this brand into my shop. How do I deal with that? These are called minimum guarantees where it's the way that businesses, if you're buying from a brand, they usually say you need to spend at least 500 or or 1000 or whatever. Totally. And if go, you think, oh, my God, I can't do that. I don't have that cash flow. Mm -hmm. And if you think they might need access to funding, big businesses, it's much easier to get access to funding. How do I get access to funding? How do I manage my cash flow as a small business? It's harder to do that. So what we do and what we exist to do is to identify the pain points of these retailers that they face on a daily basis that's preventing them from succeeding and provide support for that. Mm. And the cash flow that you help them with, the payment days, mm -hmm. setting up. Correct. We give them 60-day payment terms uh, so they don't need to worry so much mm. as, as for cash flow, which is vital. Cash is king. Mm. And then you have Anchor Start. Because the other thing is it's extraordinary, the amount of entrepreneurs. People are saying, I want to do my own thing. I can't trust business today. I can't trust organisations. I don't want to work that way anymore. I want to be my own boss. And we're seeing a phenomenal amount of people kick-starting their own businesses. So tell me about Anchor Start. Particularly the younger generation. Yeah. I think when we look at Gen Z, 80% mm. of Gen Z are considering starting their own business. And actually 40% are actively... Doing so. Doing so. And it's because it's so much easier to set up a business mm. than it was 10, 15 years ago. Because of the internet. Because of the internet, yeah. yeah. And so Anchor Start was a project started just over a year ago. And the idea was, can we identify and help aspiring entrepreneurs to launch their retail shop? So from all the way to concept to actually moving into the store. So that includes helping them with the business plan. It includes helping them get access to payment terms. It's helping them choose which brands they should assort in the product assortment in their shops. You know, I was thinking about this. Often I hear 
value, value. We're going through, you know, one of the biggest financial crises. Everybody thinks small is expensive and the big are cheap. And I have looked at this time and time again. There's a fabulous little kitchen shop near me and I remember going in to get glasses and she was talking to me about that, so I need some wine glasses. Uh, yeah, my kids break them all the time, don't tell me. And she said, everybody thinks that we're more expensive, but we compete on all that stuff. If someone else, like a John Lewis, has sent it, we compete totally on their price points. And also, I think we have to understand, and why I love this, is what is value in our lives today? And I think what happened, it's not just price, it's about convenience. We don't have to travel. We're not putting zooms and fumes into the air. But also the value of that social infrastructure and what it does to the local economy as well. Because every pound that you spend is a vote on how you want to live. And what you give back into your local economy stays in your local economy. I think it's something like 80% of it. Whereas if you put it over to Amazon, forget that. So we need to look at the values in life. Is it just about cheap and actually not having this wonderful, warm, fuzzy feeling that just feels I'm safe and secure? Because that's where I'm going to finish on that because luckily you and I have got to a place in our lives where we're safe and secure. Mm. And that's done by all those things that you talk about. And the one thing I want to finish on is that you're about to have another little bubble, aren't you? <laughs> I have indeed, December. Yeah, December. And you said something to me the other day and I thought, that's so lovely. Tell mm. me what you said. I said it, I feel part of a tribe. Yeah. And it's so fulfilling. And there's nowhere that I've felt in my life the greatest sense of belonging than being with my wife and child. Yeah. Jeroen, that was wonderful. Thank you so much for being a beautiful misfit. Thank you, Mary. Thanks for listening, and I leave you with this. Don't you dare, having listened to this podcast and be inspired, think that the care of this world is always someone else's job. It's not. It's yours. Every one of your actions counts. Make it happen.